I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, regular Joe. Here's a partial list of things that have happened since former Speaker of the Texas House, Joe Strauss, announced after the 2017 session that he would not seek a record sixth term as the lower chamber's presiding officer. The 2018 elections, in which Democrats picked up 12 seats in the House and Beto O'Rourke very nearly sent Ted Cruz on a permanent trip to Cancun. The flawless maiden voyage of the SS Speaker Dennis Bonin, including a historic overhaul of school finance, followed by a crash into an iceberg worthy of the Titanic. A public health emergency that's claimed the lives of 45,000 Texans and counting the economic downturn and corresponding spike in unemployment, George Floyd and the nationwide reckoning over systemic racism, the morphing of the GOP, Speaker Strauss's lifelong party, into a wholly owned protectorate of Donald Trump, whom he did not vote for twice, the 2020 elections, tight as a tick at the national level, but no big whoop here in Texas, the biggest of all possible whoops, January 6th insurrection, the plucked from obscurity rise of Speaker Dade Phelan, and the winter storm and its aftermath. I've occasionally compared Speaker Strauss in his decision to retire to Bruce Willis at the end of every action movie, jumping out of a building just before it explodes. The analogy seems apt when you look back at the most tumultuous few years this state has faced in recent memory. I mean, who'd want to run Texas in the middle of all this? Better to be a civilian, Better to be free from responsibility, liberated from political considerations. Better to be able to think what you think and speak your mind. That is what Speaker Strauss has been doing more and more of late. Since giving up not just his leadership position, but also his San Antonio House seat a little more than three years ago, 61-year-old Strauss has stepped out in the modest way that is his hallmark on subjects ranging from Medicaid expansion to voter suppression, demonstrating the kind of independent thinking that occasionally, okay, often, frustrated his fellow Republicans. Make no mistake, the former speaker is still Team Red. But back walking among us, he hasn't been shy about putting even more distance between himself and other self-described conservatives, or sketching out a vision for Texas that has prognosticators wondering what he's up to. Is he merely trying to influence the conversation going on in the Capitol and around the state? Or is he itching to get back in the game, perhaps as a candidate for statewide or federal office? I did my best to try to pin him down when I sat down with him on the morning of March 22nd, day 70 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Zachary Group, serving the energy, chemicals, power, manufacturing, and industrial sectors to plan, build, maintain, and renew their facilities at the highest safety and quality standards. Z-A-C-H-R-Y group.com. And by Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making and Pastors for Texas Children, 
faith leaders who advocate for traditional public schools, defend against privatization, and collaborate with our schools for God's common good. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. So I was thinking about you last week in the middle of the public fight over ERCOT repricing between the Senate and the House. It was during Dan Patrick's solo press conference that I said to myself, how happy is Joe Strauss not to be speaker right now? <laughs> well, he was pretty happy. Yeah. Is it about that specific, specific situation or have you been happy, generally speaking, not to be speaker? Well, I was happy to be speaker, but I was happy five you know, for five sessions. And that's a long time. Um, but I'm also happy not being speaker. Um, public service is important to me. And um, I felt that I had done just about all that I could accomplish um, in that position, five sessions. And I didn't, I didn't intend to stay that long. Um, I feel like some leaders don't know when it's time to move on to other things. Right. Uh, but that, that time came came for me, um, you know, after, after five sessions. You, you had your share of scraps with the Lieutenant Governor over the years. What's it like to be on the receiving end of that? This specific Lieutenant Governor? Well, look, I think, I think um, you know, as long as, as long as Dan Patrick is getting his way, um, he can be downright delightful. And, uh, and you know, there, there were times that people didn't know about where he and I actually reached out to each other in friendly and personal ways. Sometimes when there was a family loss or a difficult personal situation that we were aware of in each other's lives, we, um, we had a you know, relationship that, that wasn't uh, as contrary as, uh, as those more high profile public moments were. Yeah. Um, you, you know, that the perception no, out here in the world is that you didn't get along. Right. I mean, that that for, for a long time, that was the quiet part, not said out loud. And then by the end, nobody seemed to to mind saying it out loud. The assumption was <laughs> you didn't get along, didn't like each other and couldn't work with each other. Is that true? Well, we certainly came from very different parts of the Republican Party, a very different histories. And we and we um, and we had different different, you know, philosophies about what was important to deal with legislatively and politically. And so, yeah, there was some friction and some disagreement over priorities, but um, I tried never to make it personal. I think I irritated him some. And I'd also, I also think part of the, 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 the reason for the friction between us was that, and this, this is true for, for um, Governor Abbott as well, that they never served a day in the Texas house. And so, um, regardless of who the speaker is, I think I think that not having served in the House um, led to a misunderstanding of the institution of the House. Um, going back to when when uh, Governor Perry served, well, we had disagreements too, from time to time. But he always, because he was of the House and from the House when he started in his political career um, and his public service career. He understood it. He got it. And um, that made, you know, dealing dealing with him when we didn't agree um, easier. 
Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Governor Abbott. Um, you and the speaker, uh, pardon me, you as speaker and the lieutenant governor and the governor had a regular breakfast, right? This was part of tradition. You would meet every week until I believe toward the end, you didn't meet, right? There was a time at which those breakfasts stopped. I mean, th this was what I think we all thought you need, each needed to bring your own food taster right, by, <laughs> by the end. Well, we, they, they weren't proving very, very productive. Right. We also, I don't know if it's the, the current practice, but uh, Comptroller Hager was part of our breakfast meetings as well. Right. Uh, so it was, it was four of us. And what they was were, the, what was know, the dynamic were, like? Tell, tell us what the dynamic was like in the room. Well, it was it was usually friendly, and but it and it it didn't they they as the session went on, the productivity of those meetings began to wane, and um, you know, it, it, and it wasn't really it wasn't really a good use of anyone's time, and I think all three of us, all four of us probably realize that the, the breakfast meetings are, you know, a bit hyped. I mean, I think it's a good practice and it, and it can lead to a uh, positive and productive relationship, which is what you want with the, uh, with the top leaders of Texas government, but being best friends really isn't the point. Don't you all have yeah, to you work have, together? Yes. Yes. But, but the, but the interpersonal dynamics matters a whole lot to people. Uh, in your business and to the, you know, capital pro professionals who, who uh, speculate on those things um, all day. But, you know, presenting a united front is good when you can do it. But when there are honest differences and institutional differences uh, and different objectives, then, um, you know, I think it's important to be able to, um, to express those. So the fact that, as we understand uh, it to have been the case, that Dan Patrick did not go to the weekly breakfast last week in the midst of this fight over uh, power repricing or ERCOT repricing, we shouldn't take more, uh, 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 make more of that than it actually is. I mean, it's just a, it's a disagreement over policy. And even though it's reasonably early in the session for the weekly breakfast not to be happening, shouldn't read too much into it in terms of the way we're going to be able to get stuff done. Well, I don't think the breakfasts are important. Yeah, I think it's just, a, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a ritual, but I think it's overemphasized in terms of its importance. What's really important work product. What's work product? Yes. And what's really important is, is that they come to a resolution about how to approach uh, ERCOT, the PUC and getting the, and getting the, the, the grid straightened out. I mean, I think, I think people's confidence in Texas uh, has, has been shaken over this massive failure. Yeah. Um, I've traveled, I've traveled a little bit over the last couple of weeks. I've been to three or four States and everywhere I've gone, people are asking, what, what in the world's going on in Texas? That just, it, it was a startling failure to people outside the state. And I'm afraid it may have uh, damaged our reputation. We've, what do you we've think, got to Mr. fix, got to fix you, this. You've been in this job, you know, this issue, you know, you had five terms leading the house. Mm -hmm. Issues related to this came up. You were the speaker the last time there was a deep freeze when there was a discussion of whether we needed to weatherize our power facilities and we didn't do it. Um, 10 years later, the bill came due essentially for that uh, decision. Uh, what do you think yeah. we should be doing now? You know, so, you know more well, about it than most people. Well, I know a little bit about it. 
Uh, and I, and I do take my share of the responsibility after the failure of 2011, which was nowhere near the failure of 2021, but, um, it should have been, and it was meant to be a wake up call to take action. And, um, and the legislature and the executive branch and agencies have all failed. Uh, private industry has failed. And um, I take my share of responsibility for that. Um, but now it, there's no excuse for taking strong legislative action to fix this. And I personally think the House's approach uh, to this is superior to the one that the Senate took. And when I said I know a little bit about this, I mean, I know a little bit about this. I'm no expert in electricity. Yeah, but you're taking um, the side of the House based on what you just said. So the Senate desperately, 28 members of the Senate and the lieutenant governor in the lead desperately want us to, to, uh, to, uh, over, uh, to overturn the pricing or to uh, repair the mistake that was made on that. And there are some senators, including Kelly Hancock, the chair of the Business and Commerce Committee, through whose committee this presumably you know, would logically go, but, you know, okay, that's the Senate's business. He doesn't agree with that. Brandon Creighton doesn't agree with it. Sarah Eckert doesn't agree with it. But the other 28 senators, bipartisan, are aligned with the lieutenant governor on this. The House is taking a different approach. You say you don't know very much about it, but you've just put your flag down with the House rather than the Senate. How come? Yes. Yes, because I think Kelly Hancock probably knows more about it than the 28 senators who voted with the lieutenant governor. And when... um, I think that a rush to action without understanding what all the problems were is usually a mistake. And while it sounds good and it's, and it's, you know, rank populism, especially you, you can take these kinds of positions and be very forceful about it, especially if you don't think it's really going to happen, but it puts people in difficult political postures. Yeah. Um, but accomplishes very little else. I think the House's approach being more deliberative, wanting to get more facts out there is is a better way to go. Uh, But beyond just the House's approach, um, I believe what what should be called for is an independent commission. I think of people who really are experts in this world ought to be called in and do all the forensics necessary that have not been done and that frankly are existing agencies are not equipped to do themselves. And it takes some time. It might take, it might take three months to do it. Find out, find out what happened and why and who benefited and who lost. And, um, and then come up with some recommendations on how to fix it. Um, I don't think this is going to be, and I, in some ways I hope it isn't resolved in the next uh, 70 days of this session. I think it's too important, should take longer and, and, we shouldn't be in a rush to make a political fix to something that is much, much deeper and more important to this state uh, than some of the ideas that have been put out there right now. But until you really understand the facts, until you really take all the x-rays and do all of the, of the, uh, of the testing, I don't know how a surgeon would know what organ to, to operate on. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Speaker, you know that back in 2011, there was talk that the reason we didn't move more aggressively to try to correct the problem 
uh, again, back to weatherization of plants and all that, was that industry did not want to bear the responsibility for doing it, the cost, that this was basically industry getting its way. Industry had close ties to to the legislature and to individual legislators mm-hmm. through support of those legislators. And now on the back end of this in 2021, we have this leaked tape in which the remaining commissioner, the chair of the PUC is said to be telling uh, uh, moneyed interests, don't worry, we're gonna make certain that your moneyed interests remain moneyed interests here. We're not gonna, we're not gonna undo this. Is that what's going on here? Is this as simple as that rich and powerful people are rich and powerful people and wanna remain that way and so the, the citizens of this state end up getting the short end of the stick. I'm not going to go quite as far as, as that explanation. I think there are elements of what you say are true. Um, but I don't, I don't believe for a minute that big industry um, wanted to see what happened in February happen. It hurt, it hurt them. It continues to hurt them. Yeah. And so I think so I think that there are reasonable ways to address this that should have been done in, after 2011, but weren't. Um, I think there are uh, I think there are alterations to the market system that yeah. can be made. I remember the debate when I was when I was there, even when I was on the regulated industries committee before I became speaker um, to talk about a, a capacity market where. You got to you got to incentivize electricity generators to have the capacity you need in events like uh, like we saw in February. It doesn't come for free, and and if the free market's going to work, and in, in what is to some degree a regulated business, um, you've you've got to have incentives four times like we went through, and they don't exist right now. They need to. The cost of electricity may go up some over a long period of time, but we won't have this this abject failure again that we right. uh, experienced a month ago. So I think there are, I think there are um, uh, alterations to the marketplace uh, that need to be made. And that, again, I, I would I would recommend that a, uh, a a commission of experts be brought in and take some of the politics out of it. And then have the legislature address the recommendations that experts make. Yeah, you, you you put a lot of responsibility on a lot of different people for this. You said earlier, you know, the legislature is to blame, the executive is to blame, agencies are to blame. Um, so let me ask you first about how how do you think very quickly, kind of in, in a kind of brief, you know, assessment or analysis of of you think Dade Phelan as speaker has acquitted himself well through this to this point? You, you said you agree with the House's approach to this. So you, you're, you're with the speaker on how he's approaching this. I think, he, I think he's acquitted himself well in this. I think he's been deliberate. He's, he has not taken the bait yep. um, that the lieutenant governor you know, held out there for him. And, um, and I, think he, I think he knows that his job is to represent the House and his district back home, tune out a lot of the noise, and... Um, and, you know, let let these special interest groups do what they do and let the media do what they do and let the other statewide elected officials do what they do. But um, but I think he's been I think he's been um, effective so far. And I think the House being deliberate um, is the responsible approach. How's the governor done? You, you mentioned that the executive bears some responsibility. Do you agree with the governor's approach through all this? 
I'm not real sure what the governor's approach is on all of this. Um, but I do think that, um, that the storm and the, uh, and the performance of our electric grid um, hurt this, this whole aura of, of superiority around Texas. Right. You know, for so long, so long, the narrative's been that, that everybody wants to move here to get away from high taxes and heavy regulation. And that's certainly true and been a big part of our success. But our, our government has failed to beat the citizens' needs uh, in, in these really difficult circumstances. So I think our bragging rights have been hurt. Yeah. And, um, and I think, and I think true, I think real leadership needs to be approached from the vantage point of humility and humility to, to listen to independent experts, um, even when they tell you what you don't want to hear, to be open right. to good, good ideas, wherever they come from, even from people in the party that you don't represent. And, um, and I feel like there's been a complacency, not, not just this year, but over the past quite a few years, there's been a, a, a complacency that Texas is just going to outperform everybody else because we're Texas. But uh, there, there are other states that don't have income taxes like Florida and Tennessee and a lot of other states that are economically very competitive. So um, I don't think we're going to maintain our edge uh, by being complacent. And I you think, think we that have was been. the case, Mr. Speaker, during the last year over the coronavirus outbreak? I mean, you heard much of what you just said, said about how we approached COVID. And, you know, most recently, the decision to lift the mask mandate, what you heard was we're not listening to experts. We're not listening to science. We think that we're immortal. Um, you know, we, we believe our own exceptionalism line when the reality is it may be that a different approach is, uh, is warranted. Obviously, not everybody thinks that, but what you just said about the storm uh, response, hasn't that also been said about the COVID response? It has, and I think, that, um, I think that there could have been better partnerships early on between the state leaders and local leaders, putting, putting local leaders who are on the front lines in a uh, very difficult position in their communities. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that, that, um, that I think politics too often uh, eclipsed the metrics in this thing. Um, and I think it puts uh, not only local officials in a difficult spot, it puts businesses in a tough spot um, when, they don't, when they don't really know what the rules are going to be based on metrics that are pronounced and then ignored. Yeah. Would you have lifted the mask mandate yourself, Mr. Speaker, if you had been governor at the time? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't have access to all the current metrics that the governor has, but I, I think that I would have been more deliberative about it. I would have maybe not announced an immediate, you know, lifting of the mandates without, without uh, bringing in local officials, without bringing in business leaders to figure out how to do this effectively. I mean, of course, I, I'm glad that things are getting better. I'm really happy that the vaccines are becoming more available now. Um, but there has to be a balance in decisions that are made at the state level and uh, those decisions that, that affect people's lives and livelihoods. There's a way to, to, to um, in a more orderly way, to, um, to, to govern in these situations. And I'm afraid too often, again, I think politics uh, takes the front seat. Yeah. And, um, and I, I do think that there needs to be more of a uni unifying message 
bringing people together, uh, not saying that the governor's wrong in all of these cases or that local officials are always right. But I do think there has been this friction that should have been eased uh, so that so that that we could work through this and get people back to more or less of a normal life uh, without all the bumps that I think are created by politics. Well, do you know, tell, can you explain to me, Mr. Speaker, why the vaccine rollout has been so hard? You've been in government. Do you have any sympathy for the idea that this stuff is much harder to pull off than it looks? You know, Texas has been kind of in the barrel uh, over this issue that we're somehow down at the bottom of the 50 states and the number of vaccines administered per 100,000 people. People want us to have done a better job, want us to do a better job. But the pushback is often, look, we have a lot of people in Texas. This is complicated. Where do you come down on that? Well, we do have a lot of people in Texas and it is complicated uh, because we have so many diverse communities that are, you know, made up of, of different, uh, you know, different, different, um, uh, organizations. We have a big, vast, spread out rural area, uh, and we have concentrated uh, urban areas, and they and they do come with unique challenges. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to be too critical about the vaccine rollout, but it it certainly, um, you know, it certainly was not. Uh, uh, it didn't appear to be very well organized. I'm yeah. glad it's better now. It needs to be better now. I think that um, our, our leaders need to encourage, uh, be more encouraging of people to want to get the vaccine now that they're becoming more available. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I think, I think it could have been better organized. Um, and I think it also, um, I think it revealed a lack of preparation in our public health systems um, that I hope um, will be rectified going forward because um, because our public health officials don't think this is the last pandemic we're going to have to live right. through. Right. Uh, Mr. Speaker, you mentioned politics. So let's let's dive into politics. I, I've been thinking a lot about the time that you were speaker. You were speaker at a moment when the politics of the country really evolved. Right. You became speaker before that summer of 2010. Um, that was kind of the full flowering of the Tea Party. Um, the country during your time as speaker became significantly more polarized than it had been. It was polarized before, but it became more polarized. And, and the polarization went from not just went not just from R versus D, but it went to R versus R, right? So I want to ask you about the R part of this, the Republican part of this. I want to ask you what you make of the Republican Party these days, your party. Your mother, Jossie Strauss, started working for the Republicans in 1959 when she formed Nixon girls, organizations at local high schools. This is at a time when Texas was not a Republican state remotely, right? She was a precinct chair. Yeah. She was a member, a member of the state Republican executive committee. Is the party of Jossie Strauss back then the Republican party today? What, what's happened to the party that she knew and that even you knew just a couple of years ago? Yeah, no, it's not, it's not the same party at all. And the Democratic party is not the same party that it's been. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in our lifetimes, we, we, come to believe that these two parties have always existed and that they've always existed in their current form. And that's not, that's not at all the case. Uh, political parties live and they die and they change and they are changing and they're going to continue to change. Um, ultimately, the voters are going to decide uh, which parties thrive and which ones don't. 
I continue, and this is not a new thing for me, I continue to be very concerned about the current state of the Republican Party as it has evolved in the last 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Um, I, I maintain that Texas is a center, a center right state. It's not a far right state. And um, I think that I think that during my time in public office and today, that too much of our politics is based on what's really not a difficult game to figure out. And that is, if you can just win 50% plus one of your primary, you don't have anything to worry about in November. And so our legislation, our politics are all geared toward that game. And, and right now in Texas, I think there are, what, 21 million, 21 and a half million registered voters. In 2020, there were 2 million voters in the Republican primary and 2 million voters in the Democratic primary. And that was a really high turnout. Yeah. So if you're a Republican, if you can win 1 million and one vote votes in your primary, that's really all you have to govern for. And there's there's tens of millions of Texans who really are kind of left out of that process. Yeah, but what, they Mr. Don't Speaker, what would, this has been a problem for some time. What would you do about that? I mean, it seems to me one answer could be you need a better Democratic Party as an alternative in November so that people have to actually compete for votes other than those in, in their base. Is the problem that the Republican Party has moved too far to the right or that the Democratic Party has effectively ceased to exist? Which is the problem? Well, a little bit of both. I think that um, I think the Democratic Party is missing a real opportunity. I'm not sad about it, but I think they're missing a real opportunity. When I said that Texas is a center-right state, uh, not a far-right state, there are an awful lot of independents and now disaffected Republicans whose votes are up for grabs. And we saw that in 2018. We saw some of it in 2020. I think this narrative that 2020 was such a great year for Republicans is overblown. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, um, won, won the state of Texas, but he didn't win it by much. It was the worst performance of a Republican nominee in, what, 25 years or more. Since Bob Dole and Bill Clinton. Uh, so speaking of 2020, Mr. Speaker, you have acknowledged that you did not vote for Donald Trump in 2020, correct? You've said so out loud. I, didn't, I, I did not vote yeah. for him. Did you vote for him in 2016? I, I voted. I did a write-in in 2016. I've never voted for. I've well, never voted for Donald Trump. You never Trump. voted for Donald Trump. Did you vote for the no. Democrat in either election? Um, in 2020, um, yes, I did. You voted for Joe Biden. I voted for Joe Biden not because I agreed with his policies, but um, I think character matters, and I think the uh, I didn't. I was really alarmed at the at the rhetoric and the behavior. Um, of of our national leader. And I think he was hurting our reputation abroad. I think he uh, really was never qualified to be president. And um, I think the events post November 6th prove that I was correct. And again, that's not to say that I'm a fan of Joe Biden's policies. Right. But, uh, but you wrote but somebody else in in 2016. Why didn't you write somebody else in in, in 2020? Well, your mom, because, uh, your mom, Dennis Bonner, <laughs> me. Why didn't you write me in? I mean, you could have written somebody else in in 2020. Uh, well, I could have, but I, I really felt that uh, that that it was a serious, a really serious contest, 
for the for the heart of the of the country. And I think some things are bigger than partisanship. And so I did. I crossed over. First time in my life I voted for a Democrat for president. Mr. Speaker, you know that people will say, finally, Joe Strauss is acknowledging what we've thought all along. He really is a Democrat, not a Republican. Are you still a Republican? Well, I want to be a Republican, but I want to see where the Republican Party is going post-Trump. It seems right now not very encouraging that they're willing to give up this, this, this cult, this obsession with one person who uh, doesn't lead on principle. And um, it's totally a personality thing. And I think yeah. people are afraid of him. So, so I'm not encouraged right now that the party is moving the direction that uh, Liz Cheney would like to see us move in. Um, for the moment, I'm, I'm a stay and fight Republican. But I, but I admit that my place in the party is not what it was once. So you hold open um, the possibility of not being a Republican in the future? Well, I hold open the possibility of anything that that um, that where principles matter more than partisanship. I wasn't. I mean, I'm a lifelong Republican, right? And, uh, and continue to support. A lot of these guys I, were Democrats still, Mr. Speaker. I mean, this is I, what I remind people: is Joe Strauss's party were Republicans when you could fit the number of Republicans in Texas in a shoebox, right? And and, and below the top top race in the country in 2020, I was very active in helping down ballot Republicans yeah. in Texas and in the, in the battle for the Texas House that everyone thought was going to be a, a really tough battle. So you didn't and, vote for any other Democrats other than Joe Biden in the last election? Well, I mean, I, I, I sometimes vote uh, locally for some Democratic judges that um, that yeah. I think are, are, you know, do a good job and are right. fair, you know, judicially. But um, but but I did I did help uh, down ballot Republican legislators in their races where they had to outperform Donald Trump to get reelected. And in most cases they did, but you know, look, but as the national party continues to obsess about Donald Trump and want to follow that direction, they should get a hold of themselves and realize that in, in 2021, when he left office, the Republican party does not control the United States Congress. It does not have a majority in the United States Senate, and it doesn't have the presidency. So why follow that model? It's a model. It was a model of political failure. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Speaker, in the time we have left, I want to ask you about, and we have some, some time, and we'll go a little bit long if we need to. I want to ask you about some issues that you have spoken out on of late. Uh, and I would put this under the heading of whether you felt like you could get the things done you wanted to get done as Speaker or whether good intentions and high hopes ended up as casualties of political reality. Because you were speaker for five terms, tied the record, right, for the most terms as speaker. And there were a number of issues that you're talking about today that to me, I don't remember you talking about in this way as speaker. And so I'll start with Medicaid expansion. You came out recently pretty strongly for it. You called it a smart business move you wrote in the San Antonio Express News in October, for years, Texas has resisted calls to expand Medicaid health coverage to low-income, able-bodied adults through the terms and programs other states have accessed. Respectfully, during those years, Mr. Speaker, Texas was you, right? You were Texas. I don't remember you telling us you were for Medicaid expansion when you had the power to move legislation or at least to move public opinion. Were you always for Medicaid expansion? 
or have you changed your mind? And in any case, why didn't you tell us then? Why are you telling us now? Well, you know, um, I'm trying to remember which session it was that Dr. Zerwas tried to come up with a Texas plan right. and call it Medicaid expansion because the base of the Republican Party would revolt. Um, and he took he took this to the floor and had the debate. We didn't have the votes. Right. Um, Evan, Evan, when I, while I was speaker, with the exception of the first session of 2009, when there were 76 Republicans and 74 Democrats, there was either a supermajority or close to a supermajority of Republicans during my time. It didn't it didn't drop to 83 until after I left. So the opportunities to do some of these things that I think are good business decisions um, and and better governing uh, propositions for the state of Texas were very, very difficult to do. So you were, for, right, you were for it the whole time, but you didn't have the votes. Well, I'll tell you what I, what I am against and I found unacceptable was that Texas is at the very bottom of the 50 states when it comes to citizens who lack medical insurance. Right. Now, I'm open to other, I was open to other approaches to try to do something about that, whether it's Medicaid or outside of Medicaid, but to do nothing time and time again was very frustrating. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back, it, it all goes back to this, to this, I think, ill-conceived political approach, which, uh, which is to appeal to just a bare majority of a small turnout primary. Yep. And nothing else matters. And this is a Medicaid expansion is a is a perfect example of that. Now, I think after the 2018 elections, when Republicans were scared and 2020, when they were scared more, but squeaked by one of the only uh, punches that began to land for the Democrats was on health care. And Republicans didn't have an idea and they didn't have a record of accomplishment there. So I do think, uh, especially with all of the massive spending, which, you know, as again, as a fiscal conservative, I'm not entirely uh, happy about. But there is there are many, many billions of dollars being showered upon Texas right now, whether we like it or not. And if Texas doesn't take advantage of the opportunity to insure more people and and help more people, I think they're really missing out on. Yeah. Not, not just on helping people who are working really hard for low wages, people that are working in, in some health care and frontline workers who don't make enough uh, to pay for their own insurance, and it isn't provided for them by their, by their uh, jobs. Um, I think we're missing out not on only helping people who could become Republicans, but, um, but, we're, but we're missing out. Um, on, on a real opportunity to, to do what's right for the state of Texas economically, morally, and in human terms. You know that your fellow Republican uh, from San Antonio, Lyle Larson, Mr. Speaker, has put a bill in front of the House um, to take this to the voters, as a number of other states have done, conservative states, whose conservative state leaders said, we're not going to expand Medicaid, and they take it to the conservative voters who elected them, only to find that the conservative voters actually do want Medicaid expansion. You agree with uh, Representative Larson's point of view on this? Do you think we should put it to the voters? And how do you think the voters of Texas would would litigate this issue? Well, I don't know how they'd litigate it, but I do. But I but you're right. Um, 
red states like Utah and Oklahoma and Missouri have all taken that approach. Yeah. So I don't I don't know why Texas wouldn't, especially when when uh, the facts are presented to them. Yep. Um, you know, business leaders, healthcare sector um, have have all said that it's the right thing to do. It's yep. good for our economy. It's good for our people. Yep. And um, and and right now doing nothing means that people um, in these low wage um, jobs are seeking medical attention about the only place they know to go. And those are that's to our emergency rooms. Right. And um, um, that that's creating a, a big burden and uh, and worse health outcomes for our people. Mr. Speaker, let me switch topics here uh, on voting rights. You know, today, this, as we sit here on the 22nd of um, March, the Senate is hearing the first uh, of what are a number of bills before the legislature this time on election integrity. That's the phrase that's used, uh, which have the effect of restricting uh, access to voting, uh, many, many believe. Um, you tweeted this a couple of days ago on Twitter. We should want more Texans exercising their civic duty and participating in our democratic process, which begins with the act of voting. Texas can protect the security of our elections without creating more obstacles for voters. What does that mean, Mr. Speaker? It means that as a Republican, I want more people to vote. And I want a Republican Party that's going to appeal to those more people who are voting. Do you think your party um, wants more people to vote? No, I don't. I think they want I think they want to make voting more difficult. They want to make accessing the ballot box more difficult. Look, we're all we're everyone is for and should be for secure elections. We had a secure election in 2020 and all this nonsense about voter fraud. I mean, sure, it it, it always occurs, always has, but in very limited circumstances and, and to very limited effect. So we ought to find bipartisan agreement on what voter security looks like so that we have secure elections that the people have confidence in. Yeah. Um, but, but as a Republican, I've never understood why led by Donald Trump, there was this crackdown on, um, on mail-in ballots. Republicans have prospered by mail-in balloting over the years. And, uh, so, and, you know, and, so, and some of the, the uh, conveniences I mean, Governor Abbott, to his credit, extended early voting because of the pandemic. I think that was a good move. And then he seemed to um, regret it. And, and, and if you believe the legislation that is now before uh, the House and Senate, which presumably since he made it an emergency item, the governor is at least going to take a serious look at. I mean, maybe they regret the fact that they extended it. Maybe they regretted that the laws in place allowed the city of Houston or Harris County to do what it did. I mean, doesn't this look like it's they're taking a mulligan? over, you know, kind of re relative to 2020 now? Well, we ought to make we ought to make voting more convenient, not less convenient. And politics ought to be about the competition of ideas. Yeah. And and the more people who vote and and the better you compete politically as a party or as a candidate, the better you're going to do. Yeah. But to try to perpetuate your power through limiting access to the polling place, I think is, is not only, uh, I think, I think is, is morally bankrupt. I think it's a losing political proposition over time. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things you've written recently, Mr. Speaker, March 4th in the Houston Chronicle, you wrote this, a state that embraces growth must also be ready for it. You sound like you're working for Texas 2036. 
Tom Luce and Margaret Spellings are going to send you tips, <laughs> treats for having written that. Um, <laughs> Uh, you really think we need to spend money? Is that what you're implying or saying outright that we need to spend money, invest in the future of Texas? You know, this is not really a very spendy state. I'm not sure that spending on the future is our brand. No, it isn't a spendy state. And it wasn't during the five terms that I served as speaker. And we had some really tough, um, we had some really tough fiscal times while I was there, but we balanced our budgets every time. And, um, and I do think that, um, that more investments uh, in education are going to be necessary for a state that continues to grow by a thousand people a day, either naturally or by people continuing to move here. And, um, and, and the, the failure of our electric grid, um, I think only underscores the argument that we need to be prepared. And yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of the work of 2036. I'm glad that that Tom and, and Margaret are out there talking about these issues because yep. nothing's more important than preparation right. when you're in growth, in, in growth mode. I mean, heaven forbid we start to contract. Uh, that's when, that's when you really have to, uh, that's when you really have to dig deep uh, to make investments. We don't want to go backwards. We want to go forward. We want to prosper. Yeah. And the way to do that, and the way to do that is to, uh, to invest in education, both public education uh, and higher education and, and upskilling uh, people, uh, skills that people have so that they can find meaningful work in a, in a modern economy. So, yes, it's going to take investment and um, incentive, incentives for the private sector to invest so that this story of Texas, Texas achievement can continue. Mr. Speaker, when you talk like this, you know that it sounds to people like me that you're planning to run for office again. Are you? Yes or no? Well, I don't have a plan right now, Evan. Um, I do enjoy public service, and I do think that uh, I do think that that um, that in the future, people in, in this state are going to be looking for for um, for a different type of leadership than we've had right now. But um, but right how, now we're in the middle of the future? legislative how long session. In the future? How long in the future? Are you talking about 2042, 2032, <laughs> 2022? I mean, we have state elections coming up next time. Let's Right. Let's say earlier than earlier than 2036. Will, will you will, will you I, take yourself out of the running for 2022? I mean, you, you could say to me right now, if you're not planning to run in the next elections, you could just say right now. So people like me will stop speculating. I'm not running. No, or are I'm, you considering next time? No, I'm, I'm what I'm saying is that I don't have a plan right now. That I do so enjoy. You, so you might service. run. So you're not taking 2022 off the table running for something. Well, I don't. I, I think right now we need to see the, how the legislature uh, performs in the last 70 days. Right. See, see what the pulse of the voters is. Yeah. See whether whether real uh, solutions are being offered or whether they're going to wander off into the culture wars again. I mean, we've got the we've got the uh, the women's NCAA basketball tournament in San Antonio. And there's been some some news out of there. Um, that and it reminds me of, of the bill that we haven't discussed, uh, dealing with, with transgender sports in sports. Yeah. I mean, are we going to obsess about that and ignore the grid? Are we going to obsess about some of these, some of these culture war issues that again, relate back to, um, getting a, a bare, a small majority and a very low turnout primary 
You're referring to the national, an- national Anthem Bill. Would you be putting the National Anthem Bill on the floor for a vote if you were Speaker? Well, I think it was really dumb of Mark Cuban to do what he did, but I don't think legislation is necessary. Um, I think people... I think people in Texas are patriotic and expect the national anthem to be played um, and will continue to have it played. Mr. Speaker, let me ask you, let me ask you this. Is there a lane for you to get elected as a Republican? I I believe you when you say you're a Republican for now and for the foreseeable future. And I understand that I'm trying to get you to say, well, maybe I won't be a Republican, but I'm going to take you at your word. Could you get elected as a Republican in Texas at this moment, being for Medicaid expansion, being against voter suppression, being for spending money to invest in the future, having voted for Joe Biden, and being against generally the Trumpy spin on conservatism, could you get elected under these circumstances? Well, I'm 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 willing to I'm willing to to wager that a majority of Texans agree with me, um, and I also, you know, I I hear from people constantly um, who tell me things like um, got an email the other day from a friend Joe there. A lot of, of us out here who need to hear from you. We don't know where to go politically. There are a lot of people who have been Republicans. Um, they don't want to be Democrats, but they're really they're really shaken by this last four years and by the events uh, on January the sixth. I mean, who who wants to identify with a mob that storms the U.S. Capitol? Who wants to identify with anti-Asian sentiments? And um, and some of some of the you know, the flashpoints of the last few years have really shaken, I think, a lot of Republicans up. Um, I'm not saying it's a majority, but we don't know that. Yeah. What I what I what I am saying is that our party needs to get its act together if it wants to be in the majority uh, in the future. And right now it seems to be contracting and circling the wagons and not um, not looking forward. You've been listening to Point of Order a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, former speaker Joe Strauss, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Zachary Group, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Pastors for Texas Children, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.